Good evening and welcome again. We're glad that you're here tonight. It's been a beautiful day. Very grateful for the opportunity to enjoy such a beautiful autumn day. Hope you've had a great day as well. We're going to be continuing our study. We've been looking at some questions that people ask from time to time as we talk to them about Christ. There are many people in the world today that have any number of questions and we ought to have a ready answer. Our goal is to be able to give a biblical answer for a biblical question. And tonight we want to talk for a minute or two about the problem of sin. And I hope that the questions and answers that we have dealt with thus far, I hope they've been helpful. I hope that uh, you have taken the sheets home and looked over them, maybe studied a little bit more in depth. And as I said, well, as I've said on several occasions, there's no way you will know the Bible unless you spend time outside of worship and Bible study studying. You have to do some independent study. It's just necessary. And so a lot can be learned in the classroom. A lot can be learned in worship. But ultimately, we have to spend time outside the classroom reading, studying, and meditating on the truth of God. And so tonight, as we think about sin, and sin is a subject that is dealt with in many, many ways in Scripture, and as we talk about living the Christian life, and as I've said before, think, think about somebody coming to you this week and saying, I've got a list of questions that I, I would appreciate you helping me to answer. And so, as a result of that, you begin a study together. It might be the case that you have the questions and answers, that you have the questions and you can just give them the answers immediately. It might be the case you need to go home and study some more and determine that we'll get back together and we'll study together and try to the best of our ability to come up with a biblical answer. So tonight as we think about sin and the problem of sin and addressing the problem of sin, I want to begin by first looking at this question. Are we born in sin? There are many people in our world today that are convinced that we are born sinners. Probably one of the most, I would imagine, most people in the religious world, to some degree, believe that we are born in original sin. And there are a lot of folks, even in the church, that misunderstand what the Bible teaches regarding sin. So are we born in sin? My response initially would be, absolutely not. And so, the real question is, what does the Bible say? Because ultimately, that's all that matters, isn't it? You remember in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, Ezekiel the prophet said in the long ago, the soul that sins, it shall die. And then he went on to say, the son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. Neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. So ask this question. What sin has a newborn baby committed? Because Ezekiel said, the soul that sins shall surely die. You know, the Bible says that sin is the transgression of the law in 1 John chapter 3 at verse 4. And so children are born innocent. 
As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that God is the father of our spirit. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9, can you imagine God, the father of our spirit, tainting us with sin? Absolutely not. Now in Psalm 51, there's a statement made by David many, many years ago, and sometimes people will look at this verse and draw the conclusion that based on what David said, that we are born in sin. David, many years ago, said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, in verse 5. He said, And in sin my mother conceived me. Now, there are any number of responses that people have provided in light of what David said here. I want to just very quickly tell you what I think the verse means, and I would encourage you to go home and study for yourself. But I believe if you look at David, and David and Bathsheba had an adulterous union, and obviously their child was illegitimate from that vantage point. But I think what David was saying is that we are born into a world of sin. I mean, we are born into a world that is filled with sin, isn't it? Sometimes in the Old Testament, there is a figure of speech known as hyperbole. And so as a result of that figure of speech, there is an exaggeration. But I really believe that what David is saying in the Psalms here is that we're born into a world that is filled with sin and unrighteousness. John said in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one or lies in darkness. Jesus said that when he came into the world, he identified himself as light, and he said light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. And so we live in a sinful world. But there's a second question I want to ask or I want us to consider together in our study tonight on the heels of the first question, and that is, is sin a universal problem? I don't think it takes an Einstein to realize that sin is a problem in the world in which we live. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul, in the long ago, talks about the Gentile world. And really, Romans chapter 1 is a picture of man in sin. But in Romans chapter 1, his conclusion is the Gentile world, they're under sin. In chapter 2, he turns attention to the Jewish world. The Jews, as you well know, in chapter 3, they enjoyed a covenant relationship with God. That covenant predicated on their willingness to obey His commands all the way back in Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 and following. As a matter of fact, when God gave them the law and Moses reminded them that God had borne them on eagle's wings and brought them unto, him, unto Himself, they said, all that the Lord has said, that will we do. The Jews had been the recipients of the oracles of God. They had God's word at their disposal. And yet in chapter 2, Paul's conclusion is the Jews, they too, are under sin. And so in chapter 3, he said, there is none righteous, no, not one. In verse 23 of chapter 3, he would say, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
The word sin means a missing of the mark. When did sin become a problem in the human family? We can trace it back to the Garden of Eden, can't we? When God said that the first couple were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because God said the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. And Genesis chapter 3 tells us that the first couple did eat of that forbidden fruit. As a result of that, mankind died both spiritually and physically, or he began to die physically. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul said, through one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And so again, reminding ourselves that sin is the transgression of the law. Adam and Eve transgressed, transcrossed God's law in the Garden of Eden. Today, people, based on choices that they make, engage in sinful behavior. Sin is a universal problem. And as Paul points out in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned, A-L-L. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now the Bible tells us that Jesus came to remedy the problem of sin. As a matter of fact, God in his infinite wisdom had a plan in place before the foundation of the world. John identifies Jesus as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God devised a plan. He was the architect of that plan. Jesus was the agent by which the plan was consummated. When Jesus came into the world, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus came to remedy the sin problem, and we'll talk about that in just a moment or two. And you remember in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus summed up his mission here upon this earth. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. God is interested in people who are lost and dying in sin. I think sometimes we miss that. And sometimes it may be the case that we wave off those who are living in sin because we have the idea they wouldn't be interested in the gospel. And yet Jesus broke down barrier after barrier, reached out to people that were really untouchable in many respects. And you can look at case after case in the New Testament. Matthew, for example, was a tax collector. And the religious leaders of that day wanted to know, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They couldn't understand that. And Jesus said, look, I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. He came for a purpose. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Bible says God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So God's interested in the human family. That's why Jesus came. A third question. I think it's helpful for us to ask first and foremost, because many people do, are we born in sin? Well, secondly, is sin a universal problem? Yes, it is. Thirdly, who are the lost? Jesus said that he had come to seek and to save the lost. But who are the lost? What does it mean to live in sin? In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul talks about those who are outside a covenant relationship with the Lord. And he said they are without hope and without God in this world. They're estranged, aren't they? And if you go back to the Garden of Eden, I mentioned a moment ago that man as a result of sin, became separated from God. Jesus came as a mediator 
to bridge the gap, to bring the two parties together. He did that effectively. But with regard to the lost and identifying the lost, the lost are those who are outside of Christ. More specifically, the lost are those who have not come into contact with the blood of Christ. Why is the blood of Christ so important? I mentioned a moment ago Ephesians 2 verse 12 where Paul said those who are outside of Christ or outside of coming to relationship with the Lord, they're without hope and without God in the world. But in verse 13 he said, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off are brought near by the blood of Christ. Where is salvation located? Paul said it's in Christ, isn't it? 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 10. So that would suggest to us that those who are outside of Christ would be among the lost. So those who have never obeyed the gospel, do we have case studies in the book of Acts of people who were in a lost condition never having obeyed the gospel? Yes. The book of Acts is the book of conversions. In Acts chapter 2, the church began on that day, Pentecost Day, in the city of Jerusalem, Peter and the other apostles, for the first time, preached the gospel. They preached the resurrected Christ. And the fact that Jesus now sits on David's throne, it's a spiritual throne. In verse 36, Peter said, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this same Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And Luke said, when they heard this, they were cut or pricked in their hearts. And they cried out and said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Were they lost? Yes. Why were they lost? Because of sin. What did they need? The blood of Christ. And so their appeal to Peter and the other apostles, what do we need to do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. In Acts chapter 8, we read about Philip going down to the city of Samaria and preaching Christ to those people. Why would Philip take the time to go to Samaria and preach to those people? Because they were lost. They needed the gospel. And Luke said when they heard Philip preaching the kingdom of God, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Same chapter, we read about the eunuch from Ethiopia. He had been to Jerusalem to worship. He's on his way back to his homeland. He's a man of great authority. He is a treasurer for Candace, queen of Ethiopia. As he's returning home, he's reading Isaiah the prophet. He's reading about the suffering servant, the Messiah. He asked the question to Philip after Philip joined him. Of whom does the prophet speak, of himself or of some other man? Isaiah 53, in very clear detail, Isaiah talks about the Messiah, the suffering servant. And the Bible says, beginning at that same scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Why did he preach Jesus? Because this man was lost. He needed the gospel. I mean, there are so many examples in the scriptures so people who are outside of Christ, never having obeyed the gospel, never having contacted the blood of Christ, they're among the lost. They're 
is a second group of people identified in Scripture as among the lost. That would be those who have obeyed the gospel and as a result of the world or some other allurement have made the choice to leave the Lord and they now live in unfaithfulness. Now I asked the question a moment ago, are we born in sin? And there are a lot of people that believe that. There are a lot of people that also believe that once saved, always saved. The Bible doesn't teach that. And you're not interested in what I think or what somebody else thinks. You're interested in what the Bible teaches. And that's what we're interested in collectively. Well, what does the Bible say? Back in the book of Numbers, you remember in Numbers chapter 14? In chapter 13, God had sent 12 spies out to survey the land of Canaan, that land flowing with milk and honey. The Bible tells us that when 10 of those spies came back, they gave an unfavorable report, didn't they? Only two spies gave a favorable report, Joshua and Caleb. So in chapter 14, we read, according to Moses' narrative of the events that occurred in the long ago, the people began to murmur and to complain. They wanted to select a leader and go back to Egypt as incredulous as that may have been. And Joshua and Caleb pled with the people. They said, look, we can go in and get the land. It's possible for us to acquire this beautiful land. But they wouldn't hear of it. Matter of fact, the text says they sought to stone them. So in Numbers chapter 14 and about verse 12, here's what God said about the children of Israel. I will disinherit them. They would not enjoy the promised land. So with the exception of Joshua and Caleb and those 19 years and below, the other Israelite people were destined to wander in the wilderness and to die. And they were disinherited. Now, as a child of God, as somebody who's obeyed the gospel, do we have an inheritance? Doesn't God promise us that we have an inheritance? It is incorruptible, it's undefiled, it fades not away, and the Bible says it's reserved in heaven for you. We have the hope of heaven. As a matter of fact, Paul said, we live in hope of life eternal, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. I would suggest to you, tonight in our study. If anyone chooses to leave, it will not be God. It will be the individual. What was it John said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, sin is a transgression of the law? When people choose to leave the Lord, they find themselves in a disinherited state. Now, the Bible talks about the importance of steadfastness and faithfulness to God. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul said, Be ye steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not vain in the Lord. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus in his survey of the church in the long ago said, Be faithful until death, the promise being the crown of life. James, in James chapter 1, talks about those outward trials common to all people and the fact that because those things plague us, it's potentially possible we could lose our faith. 
And so James said, blessed is the man that endures temptation. For when he's been tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul talked about buffeting his body daily, lest he become a castaway. Paul recognized the importance of living a faithful life in Christ Jesus. So what about if somebody turns their back on the Lord, do they become disinherited? Well, yes, they do. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter talks about those who have escaped the corruptions that are in the world through lust, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But he said they become entangled again in the elements of the world. As a result of that, they find themselves on perilous ground. He said it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. If you were to back up to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, you'll read Peter saying, they have forsaken the right way. Does God want me to be saved? Yes, he does. Does he want you to be saved? Absolutely. Is God interested in his children? Is he interested in their well-being, their spiritual well-being, and their goal of heaven? Yes. God's for us. He's on our side. But we can make poor choices and find ourselves in the world. And as a result of that, living in a lost condition. And so the remedy for that would be to turn back to the Lord. James talks about those who err from the truth or wander from the truth. And he said, if someone converts him, he saves a soul from death and hides a multitude of sins. And again, the idea there, converting those who have gone astray. Let me just mention very quickly, when you ask the question, who are the lost, and you wonder about God's concern for the lost, I'd encourage you to go to Luke 15 and read the emphasis that Jesus places on the lost, the lost sheep, the lost coin the lost son. Every single person is precious in the eyes of God. As I said a moment ago, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. A fourth question. What are the consequences of sin? We're well aware of the consequences of a sinful life in many respects, aren't we? We understand the emotional toil that sin can take in the lives of people. As as a result of sin, some people on a daily basis are trying to deal with guilt and the burden of guilt. They live a shameful life because they feel like they've failed in many respects. Sin hurts us emotionally. It deals a terrible blow to us physically many times. There are people that have made poor choices in life and they have lived in sin. They've gone against the will of God. As a result of that, they suffer physically. And You can read about any number of people that have made poor choices. Drugs is one example. There's an ap- epidemic of drugs in our Mid-South area. It's amazing to me the people that are enslaved to various forms of chemical substances alcohol being another drug. When people abuse those drugs, it takes a toil 
on the human body. And Paul in Galatians chapter 6 said, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. It's that law of sowing and reaping. And so sin brings terrible, terrible consequences. But most importantly, sin hurts us spiritually and eternally. Because Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. And the idea there is separation from God. Separated from a loving God forevermore. Now there's a fifth question I want us to look at in our study tonight. What is the remedy for sin? Because really this is the heart of what we're talking about. It's one thing to talk about sin and to turn to the scriptures and realize that we're living in sin or that our friend, our family member, our neighbor is living in sin, but to be able to offer them a remedy to say, you know what, I understand your condition. I was once there, but here's what you can do. Here's the good news of the gospel. And the gospel is good news, isn't it? I mean, you think about the power of the gospel to change the hearts and lives of people, to offer to people who have been living hopeless, helpless lives, to say there's help and there's hope. And that help and hope is in Christ Jesus. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That was one of our Bible verses, wasn't it? What was the other one? Do you remember? Matthew 16, 18. I want to give you another one tonight. Ephesians 1, verse 7. What was last week's? Matthew 16, 18. Can you say it with me? What was it? And I also say unto you that you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Good job, great job. Our Bible verse this week, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. And listen to what Paul said. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. We said this morning we could never be saved without the grace of God because God's grace has been manifested bringing salvation to every man. And grace is located in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. And so because God has lavished His grace upon us, He wants us to enjoy the benefits and the blessings of His rich grace. Well, how do we do that? We've got to obey the gospel. And Jesus is the source of our salvation. The Bible says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. To know that Jesus is the answer. He is the answer. He is the remedy. He is the one that can change your life for the better. He has revolutionized the lives of so many people down through the ages. He's changed lives that have been steeped in sin. And given, the, and given them hope. Paul is one great example. I mentioned a moment ago, Ephesians 1, 7. In chapter 2, we talked about how outside of the Lord, we are without hope, without God in the world. In verse 13, Paul said, the blood of Jesus is the difference. Because now in Christ, you who once were far off are brought near by the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus makes it possible for us to enjoy forgiveness, doesn't it? Do you remember what John said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, unto him who loved us and washed us or loosed us from our sins? By what? By his own blood. 
The song that we sing so often, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And think about what the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 9, 27. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission, is there? So without the shed blood of Jesus, we would be lost. But through his blood, we can be saved. Now there's a sixth question I want to ask tonight. What if I don't feel forgiven? What does a person need to do to become a Christian? Well, the Bible tells us, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that's the template, that's one template. Jesus had said during his earthly ministry, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned, Mark 16, 16. Peter told those who were present on Pentecost Day to repent. That means a change of mind. It's a change of mind followed by a change of action or a change of behavior. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. In other words, for forgiveness. Saul of Tarsus was instructed by Ananias to arise, be baptized, and wash away his sins. Acts 22, 16. So here's the question. What if after having obeyed the gospel, I still don't feel forgiven? What if as a Christian, I'm living the Christian life, I'm doing my dead level best, I stumble, I fall, I come up short, I feel guilty, I, I lack a sense of contentment, confidence. What then? What if I don't feel forgiven? Let me ask this question. As a Christian, how often have you asked God to forgive you of the same sin over and over and over? Why do you do that? Why do we do that? Why do we, why, why when we stumble and fall, let, let's just say that we make a great mistake in life. What we've done, we're not proud of, we're ashamed of, we've asked God to forgive us. Because that's what the Bible says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we ask God to forgive us, we wake up the next day, and what do we do? We ask God to forgive us of the same sin. Why? Why do we do that? Two passages. First, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. The writer there quotes Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is pointing toward that dispensation in time, the new covenant, wherein God would forgive sins in the most absolute sense of the word. And so in verse 12, he said, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and their iniquities, listen to him, I will remember no more. What's God saying? God is saying, when you come to the cross and obey the gospel, God is saying, I will remember your sins no more. So if God doesn't remember our sins in the sense he doesn't bring them up and say, okay, I remember when you did this a couple of years ago. I remember when you said that back a while or a while back. I remember when you did this or did that or whatever. God says, What's in the past is in the past, right? So why don't we believe it? I think maybe the problem is we lack confidence in God's Word. Learning to accept the promises of God. 
So let's just say you've never obeyed the gospel. And because of a lifestyle that you have carved out, you feel unworthy. And you can't imagine how in the world God would ever forgive you. And you want to know, will God forgive me? Well, the answer is yes. He'll forgive you. So what do you need to do? Well, you need to be baptized into Christ so that all your sins can be washed away. When you do that, can you take confidence in the fact that what God said about forgiveness is true? Yes. Yes. So what about after you become a Christian? And you're doing your dead level best to walk in the light with the assurance that as you walk in the light, the blood of Jesus is constantly at work in your life. And let's just say you stumble and you fall and you pick yourself up and you ask God to forgive you and then the next day you're battling that same old sin. And you're questioning in your mind, did God really forgive me yesterday? I'm trying to do what's right. I'm trying to live a Christian life. Did God really forgive me? What did John say? God is faithful, isn't he? God is faithful. If we confess our sins, he is, listen to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look at that word all, from all unrighteousness. 1 John 2 verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you that you sin not. But if any man sins, let him know he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And the picture is that of Jesus serving as our advocate, our attorney. And he is pleading our case before the bar of heaven. And I can just see Jesus standing before God. And the basis upon which we are forgiven, the basis upon which we no longer bear our sins is his blood. Is his blood sufficient to do what God said it'll do? Yes, it is. God's blood is powerful enough to wash away any and every sin in your life. No matter what the sin, no matter how deep the sinful life may be, God has the ability and the willingness to forgive sins. That's why we say the gospel for all, because it doesn't matter who you are or what you are, God will forgive. So when we talk about the problem of sin, understanding that in certain contexts, people have difficulty accepting forgiveness. And I think sometimes the most difficult person to forgive is ourselves, isn't it? I mean, think about that for a minute. You know, we forgive a friend, a family member, a neighbor, a mate, a child, a sibling. But learning to accept God's forgiveness and learning to take him at his word. A little over a year ago, I, I mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. I had the opportunity to visit with a buddy of mine and he had been a great mentor to me. And he was a tremendous friend. I could talk to him about anything. So I'm with him two months before he died, battling cancer. And we're talking about eternity, leaving this world. 
And he said, you know, I have come to the conclusion it's all about faith or confidence that his blood will do what he said it will do. Now you think about that for a minute. When we step out into eternity, what's the basis upon which we're going to, we're going to spend eternity with the Lord in heaven? What's the basis? It's his blood without which we would be lost. And so putting confidence in his blood, that his blood will do what he said it will do, and that it will continue to operate just as he said it would. And so listen to what John said, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his son Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Are you trying to live a Christian life? Are you trying to live in harmony with the Word of God? You know what John is saying? You are in a safe relationship with the Lord because His blood is continually operating in your life. So really it comes down to confidence. Believing that God is faithful. When God says He'll do something, He'll do it. We don't have to worry. Is he going to waver? Is he going to change his mind? Not, not at all. When God makes a promise, he stands by that promise. The Hebrew writer said, it is impossible for God to lie. That's not, it's, that look, that is antagonistic to his character, to his nature. God only speaks truth. Does God want us, does God want us to feel confident? In his blood, yes, he does. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, could we encourage you to come to Christ? Believing Jesus to be the Son of God, repenting of your sins, being baptized into Christ so that all your sins can be washed away. If you're here tonight and you need the prayers of the church, look, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you. We understand life is hard. And we stumble and we fall and sometimes we just need the prayers of other, other members of the body of Christ. Prayers for strength, prayers for forgiveness. So if you have that need tonight, we encourage you to come as we stand and sing.